The weather may be cooling down, but the savings are heating up at your local Sears Auto Center. This Labor Day, you could get four durable all-season diehard tires and only pay for three. Plus, you'll also get a $100 Sears Award card to use on future purchases. Great savings backed with a 70,000 mileage warranty. Die hard. Don't wait. Visit SearsAuto.com to find a Sears near you and take advantage of this Labor Day sale. Installation required. Exclusions may apply. Offer valid now through September 9th. Coming back and joining me tonight here on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and tonight I've got three more great guests that I'm really excited that I'm going to get the opportunity to share with you. First up tonight, I'm going to be joined by 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. You know Sean's been a wonderful friend of the show over the last several years, and uh, we've had the privilege of having him on many times. And he's got you know, a lot of great stories, a lot of great experiences, and some fantastic insights into what's going on around the PGA Tour. Tonight, I'm going to talk to Sean about this year's PGA at Quail Hollow, how tough was it contending with those greens, right? We heard a lot of feedback on those greens and how difficult they were to not only to putt, but just get the ball close to the hole. So we'll get Sean's input on that. I'll also get his reaction to last weekend's Northern Trust finish. We'll also talk about, you know, some of the equipment he's playing now, the mental side of the game. And one of the other things I want to get Sean's thoughts are is, is we've seen Jordan Spieth a couple of times, right, have five-stroke leads in the final round of a tournament and, uh, and then ultimately, you know, lose those leads. What's it like you know having a lead like that and how do you stop from getting into the mindset of playing too conservative and playing not to lose instead of going out and winning a golf tournament so we'll talk about that and a whole lot more when sean joins me here in just a few minutes Following Sean, I'll be joined by Golf Academy instructor Rod Strano. Rod is uh, one of the top instructors in the game. You've probably seen him regularly teaching on the Golf Channel. So I'll talk with Rob about, we'll talk about short game, we'll talk about sinking more putts and how to, you know, practice properly. One of the things that I think a lot of us struggle with is we, we practice, but we don't really practice with a purpose or with a, a game plan in mind. And we'll talk to Rob about how to do a better job with that. He'll be along with me a little bit later on in this half hour. And then we'll round out this week's show with a visit from Keith Hirschland. Keith and his father, Lee, spent their careers in broadcasting, both in front of and behind the camera. Keith has written a couple of books. One is, you know, that I've gotten through so far is absolutely fantastic. It's called Cover Me, Boys, I'm Going In, Tales from the Tube from a Broadcast Brat. It's a fantastic book. It's available out on Amazon. So started to get through a lot of those wonderful stories, and he's got a lot of great stories to share. So I'm really looking forward to getting to, to spend some time time with Keith a little bit later on in this hour. So like I said, we got a lot of great stories and information coming your way tonight here on this edition of Next on the Tee. I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next hour. And as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonero about the great things they have coming up this fall. Fall golf is gorgeous at French Lick Resort. Perched on one of the highest points in Indiana, the Pete Dye course hosted the first ever senior LPGA championship this summer. Ask the ladies, the views are spectacular. 
the venerable Donald Ross course is looking better than ever as it celebrates its centennial. Go to FrenchLick.com and save with our Hall of Fame package. Play legendary golf at French Lick Resort this fall. Yeah, folks, be be sure to go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great a place it really is and to book your stay as well. I also want to remind you about our new friends at Kinetic Sports, makers of Club Hub Sensors, the most comprehensive swing analysis and shot tracking tool in golf. If you're like me and and you want to know all the data related to your swing, your swing speed, distance you hit every club in your bag, your swing tempo, angle of attack, and so much more, then Club Hub Sensors are what you need. And guess what? You can get all that data for every shot, whether you're on the course or out on the range. Plus, their iPhone and Android apps have thousands of courses preloaded and mapped out for you. So not only will you be able to get GPS distances to your target or to the hazards, but you'll also be able to look back after your round and see exactly where and how far you hit each shot. Think of what that's going to do for you, for your preparation you know, the next time you're going to go play that same golf course. The app will also track you know, the average distance you hit every club in your bag. So no more guessing or approximating. Are you ready to improve your game? Are you ready to take what you know about your swing to a new level, either on the range or out on the course? Club Hub is going to get you there. See what they can do for you at clubhubgolf.com and use the promo code NEXT to get 10% off on all your products. Again, clubhubgolf.com. And we're also excited to welcome the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company to Next on the Tee. The Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company is back with the same great equipment that you know and love without the retail markup that you hate. Now you can buy premium Ben Hogan irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, and bags directly from the factory at prices that your wallet is really going to appreciate. Visit them online at BenHoganGolf.com or give them a call to order, 844-53-HOGAN. Again, 844 844- Five three Hogan, and please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Company. You know they've got great apparel, and their fall collection is out now. It's it's time to update your wardrobe with enduring style from the Bobby Jones Apparel Company. See it all online at bobbyjones.com. And folks, if you've been with us for the last several months, you've heard me talking about and bragging about the great things that Russ Holden and the folks at Caddy for a Cure are doing. I believe so much in Russ and his team. You know, we are very proud to be partnering with them now. And, you know, one of the most unique experiences in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Get to spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and also a terrible disease uh, disease called Fancona anemia. You're going to get to walk side by side with a tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to the amazing experience you're going to have, you're going to get a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logo apparel, an eyewear package, a tour grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a tin cup ball marking gift, chef's cut jerky, and a professional photographer uh, for, uh, photograph of your day. So you're going to get all that wrapped up in a nice package. And on top of that, you're doing a great thing and you're having a great time. Go to caddyforacure.com to learn more about what a great experience it can be for you. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line and been away far too long for that matter is 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. Sean is by far 
one of the most underrated players who's ever played on the PGA Tour. Far too many people, especially in the media, only remember Sean's win at the PGA Championship. They don't give him credit for the other things that he's done out on tour, which include his runner-up finish at the 2006 PGA, finishing behind only Tiger Woods at Medina, or his runner-up finish at the 2006 World Match Play Championship after defeating Tiger Woods, oh, by the way, in the first round, or his 20 top 10 finishes, or his 57 top 25 finishes. He's only the second player to ever record a double eagle in the U.S. Open, which he did back in 2010 at Pebble Beach. And the time, you know, is rapidly approaching for him to get out on the Champions Tour which I can't, I can't wait to see happen. And I'm glad he is back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Sean, how have you been, my friend? Hi, Chris. I've been doing, about, doing very well. How about yourself? Ah, really well, thank you. So, Sean, I wanted to start our time tonight by uh, you know, going back to the, this year's PGA Championship. And uh, you know, like I said at the top of the show, you know, I, he- I heard a lot of things about you know, the, the greens, you know, some, of the, some of the holes out there, and you know, really just not only putting the greens, but just trying to get the ball close to the hole out there. What was it like for you? What was, it, what was your experience like at Quail Hollow? Well, it was, it was difficult. You know, I got there um... – I got there and played my practice round on Monday. I went out with Tony Finau and Charles Howell. And kind of a windy day. Um, this was going to go out with for nine holes. And, you know, it's it's one of the courses that, you know, when you play there, and the last time I think I played there was 2011. And um, I think it was the first time that I ever played a major championship on a golf course that, we, that hosted a regular PJ Tour event. So I had all these – kind of thoughts about the golf course and how it was going to play, you know, based on the scoring, in a, you know, in the tour event that I'd played in for so many years. And uh, we got out there, and, of course, I knew, like everybody else, the, the design changes and just the renovation and everything. And uh, to kind of get probably at the end of this conversation first, uh, you know, Charles Howe and I, we got on the green. And what I, what I took, kind of took away from the first nine holes that I played was that, the golf course really needed what I would call a, a deep tine aerification. Um, it was in tremendous shape, uh, um, very difficult, very penal rough. Although it was rough, you know, you could advance the ball up to the green um, for the most part. But the greens, to me, just didn't feel like they were ready. I, I kind of felt like the golf course needed another year to kind of soften um, just a little bit. It was uh, really difficult to get the ball close to the hole. I, the sub-air system that they had, we had some rain. I don't know if they had turned it on, but it was just extremely difficult to get the ball close to the hole. And certainly pitching the ball, there are a lot of um, what what uh, people are calling now thumbprints in the greens uh, with a lot of runoff areas, with a lot of areas that are that were shaved down around the greens. Just made it very difficult to really kind of really take any flag on. I think it was more defensive golf. And you look at that, even even single digits under par, I think one, what did Justin shoot, eight, nine under, something like that. But um, it was just really difficult to get the, get the ball close to the hole, uh, really with any shot. But um, it was different. It was it was unique. I wasn't a big fan of what they did on number one. Um, and then there's been a lot, of, a lot of people talk about the holes and, and things like that. And I'm sure some people liked it. It just felt to me like it, it needed to be played as a par five. Um, just the way that, just the difficulty of the green, distance-wise, was really not an issue. It was a driver five iron for me. So, 
but it was a very tough start and just a, a very, very challenging um, 18 holes. And, you know, to that point, Sean, you, you talk about, you know, number one, you know, that, and that's some, some things that I've heard, right, is, boy, one should have really been played as a par five, not as a par four. I've also heard, heard concerns about number four, that that green was too penal for the length of shot that you had to play into there. You know, talk about, you know, shot selection and, you know, the irons that you were playing into some of these greens and, you know, and, and you know, as we're starting to see more of now, right, par fours stretched out over 500 yards is it getting ridiculous for for what we're what we're doing to golf courses now no well i don't think so i mean i think what you saw with the u.s open guys were managed to shoot pretty good scores around there and um the, i think the issue was with the greens being firm with the sub air system and it's something you see uh, at, at augusta as well is that the fairways can contain a lot of moisture you know there's no sub air in the fairways and so the ball that you're getting is is not running and you're having to play a much longer shot into the green. Um, so it just makes it makes the mental part of the game, I think, come into play a little bit more. And I think that's something that's been lost in today's game because the, the kids today, they're not afraid, which it's, uh, you know, I kind of embrace that a little bit with watching them play, the style of golf that they play. But this particular year required, uh, you know, ball striking. The fairways did play wider. They were They were fairly generous anyway. But it just required a lot more mental uh, kind of toughness and and uh, preparation, I suppose, uh, as opposed to just walking up, looking at the flag and firing at it, because that, that's what today's games become. And you, you know, you use the word "not afraid." And and speaking of not afraid, when you looked at Dustin Johnson and the drive he hit on 18 in the playoff, right, 350, 60, yeah. whatever it was, yards, right, to give himself a 60 degree, you know, lob wedge in. While Jordan, you know, you know, played straight down the fairway and still had six iron in. Talk about, you know, is that? I mean, to me, that's I, I can't even imagine smashing a ball like that and then having just that little lob wedge in. What, what did you think when you saw how Dustin played that that hole in the playoff? Well, there's been a lot made. I think of uh, there were, and I don't know who they were. Just some some pros were talking about. They really didn't think the 19th hole should really turn into a, or the 18th hole should turn into a you know, a long drive competition, but that's just the way the game is. I mean, Jordan plays a strategic game. Um, Dustin took on a lot of risk. I mean, there was no guarantee that he was going to hit a good drive over the water. And I think had he hit it in the water, those comments would have been muted because um, he took a chance. He took a risk and it, and he capitalized on it. I mean, uh, you know, you look back at the way Dustin's played the last few years, his, his putting has improved uh, dramatically, his wedge game, so he actually, what what used to be maybe what I would call a weakness in his game, he actually played to his strength, which is one is driving. Um, but look, distance has always been something that we've all strived for. I don't care if you're playing the 70s, you know, late 70s when I started playing the game or even today, there are guys that just hit it farther. Now there just seems to be a, more, a lot more guys that, that hit it a long way. But um, it's just it's just the way the game is played now. And you know, I'm sure Jordan would have loved to have taken on that water on the left, but he couldn't do it. So he played he played the hole the way he felt like he needed to, and um, and he he lost the tournament because of it. But um, that you know all, all that was due to, to Dustin's you know good play on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So take us inside the tournament a little bit. What was it like being at the Champions Dinner this year? 
Oh, it's, you know, look, it's always a, uh, a fabulous time. Uh, Jimmy Walker was an incredible host. We've, we've all seen the struggles with Jimmy this year with, with battling Lyme's disease. I, I talked to him for a little bit. Our lockers were, were next to each other in the locker room. Uh, he was just down for me a bit. Talked a little bit about that. And I know his game's been struggling. I could see that he was a little worn. He was a little tired. Um, it's a huge undertaking, a huge commitment. Uh, there's a lot of nerves kind of going through through the host that night of making sure that, that everyone at that dinner enjoys themselves and enjoys the meal and enjoys the camaraderie and everything. But, um, you know, it is uh, great to be around the other players. Uh, I sat next to Dave Stockton senior and uh spoke with him at length about mostly fishing um we talked to uh, talked to seth wall formerly of the deutsche bank we talked about his new project that he's doing down in orlando with a rail system trying to get from miami to orlando so it wasn't it wasn't all about golf and that's that's typically how those nights go it's it's, it's really fun to to talk to these to these former champions and just the the all the, the people that have been so instrumental in not only playing the game, sponsoring the game, and just being around the game. Uh, it's its just a fun night to uh, to kind of put golf aside. And, uh, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think we really even talked about the golf course that night. Dave and I really didn't talk about it. We talked about fishing. We talked about salmon fishing and all the stuff he's been <laughs> doing with his son, Junior, who I know very well. But, um, you know, Jimmy was an incredible host, had a great meal, had a nice bone-in ribeye. And um, he gave uh, gave out, you know, we all know that, that Jimmy's a huge astronomer and uh, loves photography. And he gave out a, um, uh, a an unbelievable gift this year. And and uh, anyway, it's just it's just a, it's a great it's a great couple hours to kind of spend with friends and, and, other, and other people that you don't get to see uh, on a daily basis. Is is there a past champion that did you seek out, you know, typically year in and year out because, you know, sit near him, talk to him because of the great stories that he shares? Oh, no, not really. I mean, you're, you know, when you get there, you're assigned a table and you sit down there with the officers and it, it's always kind of fun to hear about where they're from and, and kind of their path uh, along the road of the PJ of America and, and, um, and everything. So, you know, you're kind of assigned, but you no, know, when I get there, it's usually the first thing I do is try to find the bar and get, uh, <laughs> and find a, a quick cold drink, you know? So, um, kind of relaxes things a little bit. It, it's fun because, you know, Al Geiberger's there every year. And, uh, you know, I grew up on the fourth green of the South course where he shot 59 in 1977. Of course, we just had the 40th anniversary of that, um, here in Memphis. And, um, I mean, what an accomplishment. So I enjoy talking to him. He's probably got the best business card in in, uh, in the world. Um, you know, he gives you a, a, a fold out card. When you open it up, it's his scorecard um, of all the of of his back, of his fifty nine. Of course, signed by Dave Stockton <laughs> Senior, who I sat next to at the dinner. So, um, wow. I I enjoy talking the story. We talk technology. We just talk about the game. You know, family stuff. I mean, it's just a night to uh, really enjoy each other and and. Uh, like I said, I like to listen more than speak. I don't have as much experience as some of these guys. So, Sean, as we look ahead to 2019 and the move of the PGA from August to May, how do you, how do you and the other players, how do you guys feel about the change in schedule and having the PGA earlier on in the uh, in the schedule? Well, it's not up to me, obviously. So I I I kind of go along with it, but I I, I prefer it to be in August. Um, I know there are a lot of factors. Uh, the game has really changed. I mean, you look at the scheduling, 
um, and how our schedule, how it impacts the European tour schedule. I mean, I don't think we're too far away from having a global or world tour. That might be five to 10 years away. Um, I think the PJ tour will still kind of be there, but, but, um, I, I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see kind of how they how they handle some of these venues. Uh, Rochester's supposed to be 2023. That'll be 20 years since my win. It might be my last PGA if they do have it then. Um, Beth Page Black is slated to be the first first one in May. And not being a New Yorker, um, I, I don't know what the weather's like up there um, that type of year. But I'm, you know, I I love the PGA for the heat. You know, we've been to some great places. You know, Southern Hills, I mean, maybe one of the hottest places I've ever been. Um, plays a great host. Um, but, uh, look, we don't have any control. I'm, I'm happy to, do, uh, you know, just enter the tournament and play. And, and whenever they tell me it's going to be, that's what, that's what it's going to be. But, um, I don't know. I mean, change is always hard to accept, I suppose, but, um, it may turn out to be the best thing. I mean, obviously the PG of America has done a lot of thought. I think they've been, uh, thinking about this for some time. I think going back to 2013. So it wasn't just a snap decision that they made. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot of moving parts. I mean, the places that, they t- that they've that they chosen, um, they know where the infrastructure goes. I think the one issue that I did get out of it was that, you know, setting things up. I mean, you know, I don't know how long the, the – and they should probably start very early on. If they if they get a heavy winter in, in New York, I mean, they may not be able to start constructing a lot of those uh, tents and everything uh, until February, March. I, I don't even know. So – um, they'll, they'll figure out a way to get it done, and we'll all look back in 20 years and say it was the best thing they ever made, the best decision they ever made. <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess you know one of the things that enters my mind when they look at you know making this change, you know, is the, the, the for the game itself, right? You know, the tour playoffs now, right, that we're seeing as, as we as we speak, and then the tour championship. It's, it, it competes with, you know, college football on Saturdays, and I know you're a big college football fan, and then it, you know, competes yeah. with the NFL on Sundays. It seems like, you know, from my perspective, it's the right thing to do for the game so that this time of year, the playoffs, the tour championship, doesn't have to live in the shadows of football. What do you think? Right. About, you know, does, does it make sense just from that standpoint? Well, I, I mean, I suppose it does. I mean, I think the everyday golf fan um, – you know, really, really enjoys golf, and they're going to find a way to get it on TV. I did speak with Jim Nance um, at the airport in Charlotte, and uh, we were talking about the moves that were being made, and he said that last year's Tour Championship on Sunday, I think he drew about a 1.8 rating. Uh, And not knowing that business at all, uh, that's apparently pretty bad. (laughs) So um, he said it should have been about a three or four or something like that. So that's probably a lot of households that haven't tuned in. So you know, they're making the adjustments that they feel like they need to make in order to maximize uh, the product that they're, you know, presenting. And, uh, you know, look, again, a lot of thought has gone into this. There's some very, very smart people that are behind the scenes that are putting these things together. And, um, you know, I guess they've they've been talking about this. I mean, this look, this, this shortening of the schedule, this really started with Tiger and Phil. I mean, they were very big proponents in um, having um, – the schedule shortened or at least ending earlier. Um, and whether that was to go for the fall money grab, I don't, I don't really know, but, um, you know, they were very vocal early on in their careers and really up until, and probably still are about, about the schedule, uh, coming to a close around Labor Day. And look, I think it's going to be fine. How is it going to impact the tournaments that are in the fall? I think those, those events still, um, 
you know, although I was kind of felt like they were the redheaded stepchild for a long time and they weren't, they weren't giving FedEx cup points. They finally did those, um, you know, and, uh, I think they just, um, they have an issue. I mean, it took us a while to kind of wrap our hands around our heads around the, you know, the kind of the fall schedule and starting doing a non-calendar year, you know, schedule, but that seems to have worked out. But, but, um, you know, football Have is it? king in the, in the fall, in the spring, you know, so, so that's, um, you know, look, I mean, they're going to have a tournament and, you know, I guess guys are just going to enter and play no matter when it is. Yeah, to your, to your point a moment ago, Sean, about the wraparound schedule, right? That's, I'm, I'm still struggling with that, right? I mean, it's, it, it's just, you know, a lot, a lot of the, you know, the big, the bigger players, then you know, a lot of the top players, I guess I should say, you know, don't play in them all that often. It, it sort of gets lost to me, you know, in the, in the NFL season. I, I still scratch my head on, you know, what, what was, what do, what was gained? I mean, it certainly gives some, you know, some guys an opportunity to play, I think, and get into some events that they may not have otherwise had an opportunity to play. So I guess it's, yeah. it's good for, development of those guys and getting them out there. But I don't know. What, how do you feel about the wraparound well, season? Well, you know, look, I haven't played that many years in, in the last few years, really, in the fall. It's been since, what, 2011, 2012. Um, you know, I, I, look, we, we this year at the Web.com event, the first two events in the Bahamas, uh, we started playing on – what did we start playing on? Sunday? I think we started playing on Sunday. We, play, or we played Sunday through Wednesday. Um, you know, there might be an opportunity for the tour to look at the fall schedule and say, okay, we're not going to compete with football. We're going to play during the week in prime time. Um, could they do that? I suppose that would have a huge impact on, uh, you know, the volunteers and, um, and the pro-am participants that are wanting to only take Monday off or whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, I didn't really care about the wraparound schedule. It was just different. Uh, European tour had been doing it for a long, long time. So I had some experience with that. But again, if their argument is to get away from football, then they're going to have to do something different if they're going to maintain the five or six events that they have in the fall. They just, there's just no way around it. They're going to have to do something. Um, and, and that could be as simple as playing, you know, you know, Tuesday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday. I don't, I don't really know what they're going to do, but. Um, they're going to have to do something to kind of, you know, give these tournaments and these sponsors a lot more bang for the buck than they've been getting. Mm-hmm. On a lighter note, you guys got to wear shorts at the PGA during the practice rounds. How great was that? Yeah, it was nice. I, I, I kind of debated that. It kind of felt kind of odd. There were a few guys that, uh, that, that didn't wear shorts, but I think the majority of the players took advantage of it. It was pretty hot first couple days um you know it's something look that's that's what game that's what the game is today i mean every one of us we go out to practice and we were wearing shorts and uh you know there are obviously some uh negative reactions i think to some of the players and uh you know announcers that felt like uh you know it wasn't professional and blah 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 but um it was it was exciting to see that the pj of america is trying to get in tune with um the way the game is really played and uh, we're not we're not trying to be stuffy. We're just trying to present, you know, good golf. And and um, and I think that's probably what came across. It was, uh, you know, after really after the first day or so, it was really no big deal. My my big problem was on Tuesday morning when I went to play it at uh, six o'clock in the morning, and it was pouring down rain, and I had shorts on and no rain pants. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, other than that, it was uh, it, I mean, it was fantastic. It really was.
So, Sean, is you know, I, we look at you know some of the things that you're doing to prepare you know yourself for playing in more golf tournaments, looking down the road to the Champions Tour. I know you spent some time recently down in Savannah working on your game. Talking about you know where you're at and the things that you're working on. Well, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a it was really a, a kind of a difficult year for me. I, I you know after losing my dad in December, um, it really um, it just my mind was not focused on golf. Um, you know, my mom passed in 2010, um, of cancer also. And, uh, my sister lives in Madagascar and I was the executor of the estates and I'm trying to handle, you know, the estate and selling the house and just doing all the things. And then also trying to, you know, get used to living my life without my best friend, you know, my dad who got me started in the game and, and he and my mom gave me every opportunity to, to succeed and, and all the great things that parents do for their kids. And so I, I'm still not kind of over my dad's passing. I'm have, still have a tough time with it just because, uh, you know, I'm reminded of him so much, but, um, I know he wanted me out there playing golf and that's what I did, but I just, I just wasn't real enthused or really interested in golf. I just had a lot of things, um, that I was trying to do. So, um, my golf game certainly suffered in the beginning and I didn't, didn't, didn't play well, didn't want to be out there. I was kind of, I guess I was just playing to be playing. I felt like I needed needed to be out there and 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 playing, even though I wasn't competing. I mean, that was pretty obvious. But um, it's, you know, just some things that really kind of uh, I've kind of left behind. You know, last year was all my focus was on him and and getting him uh, getting his treatments and everything else, and so I kind of pushed golf aside. But there were some things that needed to be worked on, and and I went down and addressed some of those things with Andrew Rice and Savannah, and uh, I actually started playing some good golf, starting about Kansas City. Um, you know, wasn't anything great. My finishes weren't great, but I was starting to make a lot more birdies, starting to hit the ball straight. You know, starting to, hit to get some more length back. So I started seeing some good things, and then lo and behold, the year ends. So I mean, so now I think now my focus is. Um, you know, as I told you before we got on the show was, was, uh, you know, what am I going to do now? Because I'm, I, I don't have any tournaments scheduled. Uh, I'd like to play a few events in Europe. Um, but, but I'm going to probably go to uh, do some qualifiers starting first or second week of October and see how that goes. Um, I'm really looking forward to 2019, um, you know, and circling back to the PJ championship, what they're going to do in May, of 19, they're going to play best page black, which will be the PJ championship. And then the very next week, we're going to travel up upstate to Rochester to play the 2019 senior PJ, which will be my first one at Oak Hill. So I'm looking forward to that. So wow. I guess my long-term, my long-term goals are really to, to get myself, uh, really in, 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 in better shape, um, both health wise and, uh, and game wise. Uh, for 2019, I mean, it's so hard to look at. I look at these athletes in the Olympics and I know you look at like Michael Phelps and he wins all these gold medals and then, you know, he might take a couple of days off and then heck he's back in the pool preparing for four years down the road. So I have a tough time trying to figure out, God, do I start practicing today for January 1st or January 5th of 2019? And really the answer is yes. And it's, it's hard to look that far out. I mean, I'm such a short sighted person, I think. Um, but, but that's what I'm going to have to do. And so, um, I'm, I'm anxious to kind of get out there and play. Uh, I'm not that anxious about turning 50, but, um, <laughs> uh, there's certainly another life. And as, as I've been ge- getting beaten up by these young kids out there on the web.com, um, 
you know, it'll be fun to kind of transition out of that, out of that and into, uh, back to playing golf with guys that I grew up playing with. And that's what I'm really excited about. Yeah. And I'm really excited about watching you play with those guys. So I'm looking forward to January 5th, 2019. And just so people know that's Sean's yeah. birthday when he turns 50. So yeah. Sean, before we let you go, let remind our listeners again about how they can stay up to date with all the things you're doing and keep up with you, uh, whether it's online or over social media. Yeah. I'm just, I'm at Sean McKeel PGA still doing that thing. And, and, um, and then, you know, I'm on Facebook as as always, but uh, just really enjoy kind of some of the things that have been going on. And certainly I want to give a shout out. I got a lot of friends down in Houston um, and uh, just all of the, the sadness that's going on down there. So I'm passing along my thoughts and prayers to everybody down there, um, you know, certainly thinking about them and, and how this, this unbelievable storm has affected their lives. And, uh, you know, Steve Timms, the tournament director, I reached out to him yesterday and that golf course where they play the Shell Houston Opens underwater, much like, uh, you know, the whole entire city of Houston. So it's not just golf, it's everybody that's been affected. So just de- definitely thinking about all of them. Well, I appreciate you saying that, as are all of us as well. Sean, thank you for taking time out of your night to, to come back and be a part of the show. I always, you know, treasure getting to spend some time with you. You've been a fantastic friend over the last couple of years, and uh, I can't thank you enough for how generous you've been with your time and, and being back on the show again tonight. You're fantastic, my friend. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. And, you know, I certainly enjoy being on and sharing some of these things with all your listeners. It's uh, it's, it's fun for me as well. I appreciate that. Take care, Sean. We look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Sounds great, Chris. All right. Have a good night. All right. You too. That is 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. And, folks, you will not find a better person than Sean McKeel. I've really enjoyed getting to know Sean over the last couple of years. He's been fantastic to us. And uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to catch and get him back on the show again uh, sometime this fall. All right, before I get to my next guest, Rob Strano, I want to you know, remind you about our good friends over at SyncIt.com. You know how we like to keep things on the positive side here on Next on the Tee, have a positive approach both in life and out on the golf course. Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought of sinking the putt in your mind through their great line of T-shirts and hats, you know, to win any tournament, whether it's, you know, out on the tour or, you know, beating your buddies on the weekend, right? You got to sink the final putt. We wake up every day, right, to finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, get get better each and every day. Have the confidence to push forward, you know, with your dreams, with unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check them out online at sinkit.com. And I also want to give you another reminder and another shout out to our new one of our newest sponsors at Kinetic Sports, makers of Club Hub Sensors, the most comprehensive swing analysis and shot tracking tool in golf. Folks, if you're like me and you want to know all the data related to your swing, right? Your swing speed, distance you hit every club in your bag, your swing tempo, angle of attack, and so much more, then Club Hub Sensors are what you need. And guess what? You can get that data for every shot, whether you're on the course or out on the range. Plus, their iPhone and Android apps have thousands of courses preloaded and mapped out for you. So not only will you be able to get GPS distances to your target or into the hazards, but you'll also be able to look back and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot that day. Think of what that's going to do for you for your preparation the next time you go play that same golf course. The app will also track the average distance you hit every club in your bag, so no more guessing or approximating. Are you ready to improve your game? Are you ready to take what you know about your swing to a new level on the range or out on the course? then Club Hub is what, what you need, and they're going to get you there. See what they can do for you at clubhubgolf.com and use the promo code NEXT to get 10% off on all products. Again, clubhubgolf.com.
All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Rob Strano. Let me give you some background on Rob. He's from St. Louis, Missouri, grew up playing at the same country club as PGA Tour players like Bob Golby, Jay and Jerry Haas, and Frank Connor. Played his college golf at Centenary College, which is famous for another you know uh, golf alumni in Hal Sutton. And one of my favorite Celtics, oh, by the way, of all time, Robert Parrish, played basketball there. Rob played on the PGA Tour, the Nationwide Tour, and the uh, NGA Hooters Tour for 50 years, and he had five wins, including the 1999 Energizer Invitational. He's now one of the top instructors in the game and was named an honorable mention as one of the top 50 instructors by U.S. kids for several years now. He's also, you've probably also seen Rob on the uh, on the Golf Channel, on Golf Academy, you know, teaching, you know, has great tips. And you're going to find him on his on his website as well. And I'm very honored that Rob is with me here tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, I'm excited to be here. I am I am jacked up on Mountain Dew to be on your show tonight. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I appreciate you doing that, Rob. That's fantastic. So, I'm, I'm ready Rob, to go. I want to start. I like to start with game. you know guests that I have on the show for the first time by going all the way back to the beginning. I read that you started playing at the age of six and you had a putting green in your backyard. So good for you. Pretty nice way to get started. But talk about your beginnings in the game. Put a golf club in your hands. Well, my, my dad put the club in my hands, much like Sean was just talking about it. And I just enjoyed the game. I had fun with it. Uh, the putting green obviously helped a bunch because I learned how to hold the ball right away, which is like, like playing basketball. If you can't shoot it and get in the basket, you can't score and you can't win. So I became a very, very accomplished putter at an early age. And the putting green, we had lights around it. So I have great memories of being out there with my dad 10 o'clock at night on a school night and we're having a, a putting competition and, and, you know, he started off giving me a, a shot a hole as, as we would have the competition. And pretty soon, um, I was giving him a shot a hole. And it just, it's just a great memory of, of learning the game in my backyard and then transitioning over to, you know, historic St. Clair Country Club, where you mentioned we're a unique course in the country and that five of us grew up there. It's not that people moved in and out as other clubs have tour players do. We grew up there and learned the game on that course. And of course, we, we all kind of followed the lead of Mr. Goldie and went around back in town. I was just in town uh, a month or so ago doing a golf camp called the coaches with, uh, with Jerry Haas. We, we got together and did a junior camp and, and sat, I sat down with for lunch with Mr. Goldie and I just enjoy, you know, picking his brain and, and just learning more about the game and the history of the game from sitting down with him. And it's just, it's a great spot. And I learned the game there and, and had a successful junior career and, and uh, went on to Centenary to play there, and we had a pretty good team with some good players. And, and then after that, logically followed the sequence of turning pro and, you know, had an up-and-down career out there as a professional with some highs and lows. And then after that, uh, the next segue was right into to teaching people to, to play the game and to chase their dreams. So, Rob, I want to go back to a point you made a moment ago about spending time with Bob Goldby. What was it like sitting down with a legend of the game like that, what are some of the things that, that he taught you, said to you, instilled in you, and, uh, you know, really just getting, you know, be able to sit down next to him and listen to him, listening to him share stories? Well, I'll ask you a question that I give my students all the time, Chris, and it's this question. In 46 years of playing golf, which obviously dates me now, how many short game lessons have I had? How many do you think I've had? Oh, I'm guessing you've had thousands of them. Okay. No, I've never had a short game lesson that I've, that someone has given me. Never. Really? I copied, 
I copied Mr. Goldie. I copied Jay. I copied Jerry. Jerry had a shot when we were playing together. We played. No one's played more golf at St. Clair Country Club than Jerry and I. We've, we, there's no one that's played more golf on that course. And he'd hit a shot. I go, Holy smokes! How do you do that? How how do you move the club? How does how do you have his hands that set up? How was he set up with his body? How did he finish? What was the tempo? I copied those guys, and then I listened. And that's one thing Jerry said to me recently. He said, "You know what?" There's a lot of people out there that don't listen right now. He said, I really respect you, Rob, because growing up with us, you were a listener. You listened and you took what we said and applied it. And that's, if, if I've heard Mr. Goldby say one time that the back of the left hand controls the club face, I've heard it a thousand times. And that's one thing. I just love hearing these little things that these guys out there, and, and, and Mr. Goldby played a bunch of golf with Mr. Hogan and Mr. Sneed. And, you know, a lot of times they're just relaying what they would say to each other as they were working on the range or helping each other out back then. And that was one of them. And then Bob said to me um, recently, he said, you know, I've never seen a great ball striker who didn't have his right heel in front of his right toe at impact. And, and you know, start thinking about footwork, which is never taught hardly in the game at all. But, boy, if you have great footwork, whether you're a golfer or a basketball player Offensive linemen in the NFL, in the NFL or, or in college or high school spend hours working on their footwork alone. Man, if you've got good footwork as an athlete, boy, you can absolutely play a lot of different sports because footwork flows through everything. I don't care if you're if you're a great dancer, like of course I happen to be. I've got great footwork, so <laughs> you got to have great footwork to do things. And so we've talked a lot about footwork and and you know club face control, and then the stories that he tells, he told a story to me recently, and I'll just give you the, the brief snippets of it, is the first golf cart. The first golf cart ever involves Augusta National and Dwight Eisenhower. That's amazing. He knows the story about how the first golf cart came to be. But that, wow. I mean, just to have him tell that story, I'm like, holy smokes, how many people on the planet still are around that know the story of how the first golf cart came to be? So very, very yeah. interesting to hear him tell tell stories and there's competitive stories and um just stories from the road and we all those of us like sean and myself and of course i mentioned jerry we have great stories for being on the road and traveling and one of the best ones that i can tell about jerry and i is one year we were in um in lafayette on what's the web.com tour now but back then it was probably nike or bot.com and in the middle of the night um i hear jerry get up I'm like, in my room together. I'm like, what the heck is he doing? And I, I don't hear him going to the bathroom or anything. I hear him get up, I hear clubs rattle. And I kind of roll over, open my eyes, and he's standing at the doorway, and he's got a nine iron in his hand. And I sit up, and I go, what are you doing? He goes, shh, someone's trying to get in the room. I'm like, what? He goes, look, listen. And you can hear like a noise at the door, like a rattling. And I'm listening to it, and I go, oh, you're nuts. And I get up, and I open the door, and someone had had pizza. And they'd put the pizza box outside, and there was a cat in the box scratching around the pizza scraps. And it was right by our door, so it's not like someone trying to get in the door of our of our hotel room. I'm like, it's a cat here. Will you get back in bed? Dang, we got an early tea time here. So, I mean, there's all kinds of funny stories from the road, and, and Mr. Goldby shares those as well as, you know, great lessons of of things, you know. how do you, He always talks about when the belly jumps, you know, 
you know, you're a great player. There's a lot of great players out there, but what happens when the belly jumps? And that's what differentiates the Jordan Spieths and the DJs from all the other guys that, that are that are, have great numbers on the launch monitors. But you, you put a peg in the ground and you put some speed, some people down the down the fairway, and all of a sudden, it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. So, Rob, to that end, and, and and you do a lot of work, you know, with with junior players and thing, you know, and, and young kids. And I'm always curious because my my son plays, uh, you know, on his uh, high school team. And when you're talking about, you know, when the belly jumps to that point, right? How do you teach kids? You know, it's about nerves, about getting nervous, about dealing with pressure and those sorts of things. Well, one of the key or several of the key things we talk about are when when you're dealing with nerves, you've got to learn to love it. It's not a matter of of being afraid of it or anything like that. It's when it happens, you've got to learn to love it and enjoy it. I learned to love it and enjoy it. I love playoffs. I love it just meet another guy. Or, or it was a Monday qualifier and there were eight of us for two spots. I love the nerves and that, and being in that moment and being able to overcome them. I got a great text. I probably got the best text I've ever gotten from one of my tour players the other day. And he was talking about, um, we were going through a couple modifications in his game. He's just fresh out of college. He's unbelievably long with a very, very good golf swing. And we're trying to get a little more control because he swings at 125. And carries it like wow. 40. It's just, it's crazy to watch. Our driving range at Kelly Plantation here in Destin isn't long enough from front to back. And it's, and it's 350-ish. If he's got a little tailwind, he's going to put it in the trees at the end of the range. But he sent wow. me a text. He said, there's a money game that plays in the area where he lives. And he said, every time he goes and joins this group, he plays very mediocre. And it frustrates him. And he went and played there. Then he said he lost like 60 bucks. And he was furious at himself, just livid. And he said, he swore he, I was never going to play in these groups again. And, you know, I'm um, just so mad at myself. And he stopped himself and kind of grabbed himself up by the car. And he said, no, he said, I'm going to keep playing until I either run out of money or I stop acting like this and I fight through it. And I, and I actually put some numbers on these guys. And he said, he went back out there the next week and he shot 29 on one of the nines with these guys. And I said, wow. that's what I want to hear. I love that battle. you got to love the battle if you're going to compete as a junior golfer. And we teach them to, when you're nervy, everybody's nervy. I always thought when I was in, when I was nervous on the first tee, I always looked at the other guys. I don't care who it was. I don't care if I stand there with Dustin and Jordan. I would look at them and go, they're more nervous than I am. And all of a sudden, talk about a calming effect. Because everybody, Tiger even admitted to being nervous on the first tee. When you realize everybody's nervy and their belly's, you know, jumpy and they're, they're, they're a little, little, little shaky in the hands and, but they've learned to control it once the club goes behind the ball and, and turn it loose and go. And, and that training just comes from having a good routine. Um, I always work with my players on, on getting in the hallway and I don't let my players practice with, um, an iPod in their ears. Because I tell them, you've got to learn to not hear. So when we grew up and there wasn't an iPod or before there were Walkman, if a cart drove up, up or a car door slammed or was a loud conversation or someone was laughing while you were practicing, you learn to never hear it. I remember two instances as a player where a car horn went off in my downswing or my backswing, whatever it was, and my caddy said, can you believe that car, car horn did that? That was 
riding your swing. I said, I, I never heard it. It did. And then the other time I hit a shot and was walking through some spectators or near some spectators toward the green. And we got up on the green and my caddy goes, Hey, did you see so-and-so there? And I went, no, it was a teammate of mine from high school. And he come out to watch me. And he said, you didn't see him. You walked right past him. I said, I never saw him. So we teach our players, you've got to learn to not hear. And you've got to learn to have a focus that's you're, you're in your own little narrow hallway, I call it. It's a little room you're in. And the hallway between your ball and where you want the ball to go is all you see. You see nothing outside the hallway. So we train them to have a very precise routine and to stay in the hallway. And we, I'm a huge stickler on routine because I can tell when a player jumps out of routine. And I, I talk about routine this way, Chris, and it's really, really true. And it's something that, you know, I hate to say it this way, players know it and, 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 and people that aren't players yet are, or coaches that were never players don't quite know it and understand it is picture your routine as the back of a bunch of PO boxes or a waffle where you have all these empty boxes. So your routine, let's just say Chris's routine is 12 PO boxes. Every one of those boxes is full of something from maybe you adjusting your glove or how you walk into the ball, how you set the club behind the ball, how many waggles you take, how many looks you take at the, at the target, all that. Those boxes are full. So let's say you walk into a shot and as you walk in and get set, a bug flies and hits you in the nose and you knock the bug away, but you keep going. What's happened is you've, you've jostled your routine now. Now you're mentally building more empty boxes. So what was 12 boxes and maybe is now 15, 16, 18 boxes. What's the thing about the new boxes, Chris? What are you going to put in it? Em- they're all empty. Now random thoughts start popping in there. Oh, don't hit it in the water, right? right. Oh, oh, you know, make sure you start back slow. You know, you start thinking all kinds of random things, and that's when you have a misfire. So we really focus with our kids as it comes to dealing with pressure. It's it's routine-based. It's getting in your hallway. It's learning not to hear. It's all those things I mentioned. It's, it's you've got to be, you know, mentally tougher than the moment. So, Rob, and, and, and I think you, our conversation – Prior to the show about, you know, this is not, not going to be nearly enough time for you is exactly right because there's a, a thousand other things I want to ask you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I only got time for one more, but hopefully right. we can get you back on the show before long. But it, I just want to expand on, on that piece, right? Because we, we talk a lot about the mental side of the game on this show, Robin. And as we talk about, you know, the things that you just mentioned that you teach your junior golfers, I guess the next piece of that would be how do you, how do, what do you teach them for how to deal with frustration? If they've had a bad hole, they've made a bad swing, they played poorly that day. I know that's one of the things that my son struggles with is if he's made a bad swing or he's had a bad hole, now it takes him a few holes to kind of recover from that. How do you teach them to recover? Great question. First thing is, and, and I just put this out, I think, last week on my Twitter, uh, which is which is simply Rob Strano on Twitter. Um, I have these things called Stranotes I put out there, and they're basically they're like little note cards laying on on the on a, uh, a putting green, and and they're just little thoughts like that. I said this, I said something to the effect of frustration and determination are the same emotional response. You just have to respond to them differently. So it's the same emo, it's the same emotional energy to be frustrated and determined. 
The choice is when the moment arrives, do you allow frustration to be the choice or do you choose determination? I tell my juniors this. I tell everybody this, basically. I never want to know how you hit a shot by your, your reaction afterwards. I never want, if I'm 100 yards away watching another player at a junior event, I see you through the trees, and I can't see where the ball goes. But I can see your swing, and I can see your routine, and, and see, you know, are you doing what we're working on? Does this look like what I see when you're in a, a training session with me, and you hit it? I want to see you pose and look at it. And there's a specific reason for that, aside from the, the reaction. When you react after a shot emotionally in a negative way with frustration or, oh, my gosh, you know, you, you, you verbally say something or you drop the club or, you know, you just have a, an outburst. Basically doing is you're taking your inner whiteboard, which has all the information about the swing that you just took, and you're erasing it. And you have no way to evaluate what just happened if you erase it. If you finish the swing and stay in emotional control and hold your finish and watch the shot and evaluate the shot and rewind the swing that just happened, you can then evaluate it the right way that leads to a determination of was that good, was it bad, was it close. Now I've determined what it is. Now I can feel and sense okay, that was really close to what Coach Strano wanted me to do, or that was perfect, or boy, that was my old move right there. And we then, you know who's the best at this is Furyk. And it drives me crazy because it makes him a little bit of a slow player. But after every shot, he takes a couple practice swings. You see him whether it's perfect or, or awful. He'll take a couple of practice swings, hand fluff the club, and, and roll on. But what he's doing is he's taking what he just did, and he's either – taking a practice swing and going, no, 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 that wasn't it, I want this, or he's going, that was it, here it is again, because I can still feel it, because I didn't react not properly to what the outcome of what just happened was. That is great stuff, Rob. And like I said, there's a thousand other things, and you and I need some more time together. I hope you'll give it to me, and you'll come back on the show sometime soon, because you're fantastic. I'd love this segment. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. I have a, I have a great great time talking to you. This is a, a great show, and, and um, gosh, the honor of following Sean McKeel, who we actually, you know, I actually came up through the mini tours together, so I, I played a lot of golf in the same tournaments as Sean, and I was excited, you know, when he won the PGA, you know, I, I felt like one of my guys was winning, because, you know, we, we shared a lot of hotels and, you know, lousy restaurants and, and small-town golf <laughs> courses together. So I'd love to come on anytime, Chris. You just... You give me a I, shout, and I'll block I appreciate, the time. I appreciate it, Rob. Let our listeners know how they can follow you online and over social media. Well, social media, I always say I'm the easiest person to find on the planet. Stranogolf.com is the website. A lot of great information there. A lot of my golf channel videos are there, so you can see, you know, when I've been on, on um, you know, Morning Drive or, or some of the segments I've done, um, such as Where in the World is Rob, where I did golf instruction at famous places around the world, including the Eiffel Tower, and on the nose of a gondola in Venice where I almost fell in the canal doing that one. But um, <laughs> I, I'm easy. You know, it's Rob Strano at Facebook, Rob Strano, Twitter, Instagram. You know, I keep it simple for everybody to find me and uh, would love to interact with any of your fans out there. Hopefully they enjoyed you and I hanging out here for a little while, Chris. I appreciate it, Rob. Thank you for taking time out of your night to be a part of the show. Hopefully, like I say, we can get you back on again real soon. In between now and then, Rob, all the best to you and your family. Thanks. I appreciate it. Have a good evening, Chris. All right. Take care, Rob. 
That's Rob Strano. And, you know, he's 100 percent right in the fact that, you know, boy, I could just, you know, listen to him, you know, talk and share stories and tips and all of those things, you know, all night long. So next time we'll, we'll, we'll block out some more time because that was fantastic. I had a lot of fun there. All right, I've got my next guest, Keith Hirschland, hanging on the line. And before we get to Keith, you know, quickly, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Par Bar. Energy and focus on the golf course is essential, whether you're playing, you know, on the tour in your club championship or just your weekend four-ball with your buddies. Par Bar, the golfer's nutritional bar, can help you do both. Eat some, you know, before you get to the first tee and eat the rest every three holes or so until it's finished and you're going to play with more energy and focus to win. Parbar was developed by a lifelong golfer and a food scientist to help all golfers play their best. Go online to parbargolf.com and order yours today. Folks, they're fantastic. My son and I, we, we live, we, we swear by them out on the golf course. So check them out. Check them out. Parbargolf.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. Let's hear a word quickly from our friends over there. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGASuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris. And now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Keith Hirschland. Let me give you some background on Keith. He is an Emmy Award-winning TV producer. He's produced shows for ESPN, ESPN2, the Golf Channel, and so many more. In fact, he was among the original people that started the Golf Channel back in 1995. He's written a couple of fantastic books. You know, Cover Me, Boys, I'm Going In, Tales, uh, Tales of the Two from a Broadcasting Brat is absolutely spectacular, folks. I can't recommend it highly enough. You can find it on Amazon. It's highly rated by the folks over there. He's also written a second book called Big Flies. And uh, when Matthew Lawrence tells you, you've got to interview this guy, he's really good. Well, you do everything you can to get him on your show, and I'm excited that Keith is with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Keith, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me, and thanks for those kind words. But I pay Matthew a lot of money to, to say those things about me, so I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it worked. Indeed, it did. So, Keith, first of all, like, like I said in the intro, cover me, boys, I'm going in. It's fantastic, and, and, I'm, and I'm telling you, I'm not a reader. But your writing style is great, and after I read the first chapter, I was hooked and uh, just kept reading more and more. So, you know, it, start out, if you would, by talking about the book, you know, coming back to you at the beginning, you know, with your father and, and uh, how the, you know, the two of you got started in television. Yeah, uh, thanks for, for letting me share that story. My dad and uh, mom were real risk takers and, and doers and uh Say when I was growing up, I grew up in Reno, Nevada, and uh, we were a golfing family, but we were also a television family. My dad and mom started the uh, ABC at the time, the ABC affiliate that became the CBS affiliate in Reno in the mid '60s. And um, you know, he taught me a lot about. I, I just, I, I just knew I had it in my blood from the beginning. So I mean, I knew that I knew what I wanted to do. Every kid growing up wants to be a professional athlete. That's what I wanted to do first. But um, decided that I wasn't enough and didn't want to practice enough to get good enough. Uh, so the next best thing for me was sports television. And um, I worked at my dad's station and grew up through the ranks and worked at a few other local stations. And uh, eventually my folks sold um, the TV station in Reno and went and kind of semi-retired on Maui and 
um, had a great life and volunteered for um, ESPN whenever they came over and did golf tournaments on the islands. So I got to know through, through my mom and dad, um, the folks that did all the golf work for um, ESPN at the time, it was mostly champions tour work, but they also did PGA tour shows and things like that. So uh, my folks passed away and my wife and I went over to do what kids do. And we went over to their, their place on Maui and started cleaning things out, you know, going through boxes and, and figuring out what to keep, what to give away, what to do with what. And we came across a couple of boxes of memorabilia, memorabilia for my dad's time, uh, you know, my mom and dad's time starting a TV station. And there were all kinds of commendations and letters from presidents and, his Nevada Broadcasting Hall of Fame um, commemorative uh, trophy and, you know, all these. And my wife looked at me because um, she didn't really get a chance to get to know my folks all that well. And she said, you know, I, I can't believe what a great life your folks had and how much they did and how much they accomplished. And she looked at me and she said, don't let this be your kids. You know, don't let your kids be looking into a box when you're gone. And saying, oh, my gosh, dad won Emmys and dad started two television networks or helped start. I shouldn't say I started them, but I helped start two television networks and was all over the world and knew Tiger Woods and knew Arnold Palmer. And she said, start writing down stories in a journal so that you can leave that for them or give that to them. And they'll have those memories of you when you're gone. And it, I started doing that and it just turned into a book. So. Um, that's how cover me boys. I'm going in, got started and, and we just kind of took it from there. And, you know, to, to your point, Keith, about the, the cool experiences, right. That, you know, not only that your father had, but that you had grown up, you talk about growing up in Reno. So San Francisco was the closest, you know, major league sports town. And you grew up yep. listening to, and you're rooting for the giants and the 49ers. And we need to get you on the football side on our show Thursday night tailgate <laughs> to talk more about this, but you were there, you were there for the catch, right? Joe Montana to Dwight yep. Clark back in yep. January yep. of 82. You were, you actually saw what the rest of the country didn't see. You know, you saw Daryl LaMonica lead the Raiders to that comeback win over Joe, uh, Joe Namath and the Jets instead of Heidi. Talk about some of those cool experiences you got to be a part of. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, my folks were sports fans, which was, you know, wonderful. And my brother, I have two brothers, a younger brother and an older brother. And we, we were all, we were a sports family. We played golf together every weekend. You know, we, we, um, we rooted for the Bay area teams and, and, you know, my folks, my dad and my two brothers were, were Raider, 49er, A's, Giants fans, almost equally. And my mom and I were more San Francisco fans. We were 49er fans, and my mom was a was a diehard San Francisco Giants fan, listening to Russ Hodges on the radio every, you know, every night while I was growing up. I can just hear it now. I can hear the, you know, the transistor radio going in the kitchen. But um, my dad always made it a point that every year we would go down for um, a Raider game, a 49er game, a Giants game, and an A's game. And, you know, we'd get in the car and drive the three and a half hours down to the Bay Area and, as a family. And we just got lucky um, with, the, with the Heidi Bowl game because, you know, that was kind of a, you know, a regular season game. But the, uh, the playoff game was special because my dad, you know, got those tickets. And we actually sat in the opposite end zone 
of the end zone that Dwight Clark made the catch. But we, after they won, we poured onto the field and we went, you know, it was crazy. It was wild. But we saw World Series <laughs> games. We saw 49er playoff games. We saw Raider games. It was great. And it was all because my folks were such big sports fans that, you know, that was just kind of, they just, that passed down onto us. So it was great. And Keith, as I was reading through the beginning parts of the book, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seemed like your dad almost had a vision of a sports network long before there was such a thing as ESPN. Was that what he was going for? Um, you know, it, what, it was funny because he was more, he was really, he thought it was really important that a television station serve its community. And um, you know, Reno was, was one of those really special places, at least I'm sure I'm prejudiced, but you know, it had with Lake Tahoe a half an hour away and the entertainment industry and the gaming industry. And there was minor league sports in Reno. And he just felt like and the university of Nevada is, is there in Reno. And he felt like that to really help serve the community of Reno, that the TV station, his TV station should really, um, you know, showcase everything that the community had to offer. And one of those things was local sports. So he, he made it a, a priority that the station got the rights. And, and back then, nobody even thought about those kinds of things. You know, who's going to televise what games and because nobody was doing it. So he went to the University of Nevada and he, you know, um, made sure that, that Channel 2 got the rights to televise all the, all the games of the University of Nevada. We did high school football. Um, you know, so and then the, the the senior tour at the time came to Reno a couple of times, and we even televised the last three holes of the of that event when it pl was played at Reno. So he, I, it's more than just a sports network. He really thought that it was really important that you know, as a service to the community, that local sports was was showcased. And Keith, you mentioned the senior tour. And in the book, you talk about <laughs> some interactions with some of the legends of the game. Talk about your interactions with Lee Trevino. What was he like? You know, he was amazing. He was, uh, he was one of those guys that, uh, that was, um, he, he never missed an opportunity to, uh, give, give you a dig or tell you a little bit about why he didn't like you coming around. <laughs> or uh, make sure that you knew that you were interrupting whatever he was doing until the camera turned on. And then he was the nicest guy in the world. He was the funniest guy. He was telling jokes. He was doing all kinds of things. Before we turned the camera on, though, and rolled tape, he was always, you know, you're coming around here. What are you bothering me for? I got all these other guys to choose from. You keep bugging me. I mean, he was, but he was, you know, I think a lot of it afterward, you know, you look back on it and you think that, you know, that, that was just his way of making sure you knew that uh, he was the star of the show. But there was nobody ever better when the light, when that little red light went on and uh, you started talking to him because he could tell stories and he, he was, he was one of the funniest people I've ever met. And Keith, one of the events I used to look forward to every Thanksgiving weekend was the skins game. I loved, you know, watching yeah. Nicholas and Palmer and player and Trevino and, you know, the guys that sort of, you know, circled in and circled out of, you know, the skins game year in and year out. Talk about your experiences putting the skins game together. It was amazing. Um, you know, that was one of the ideas, those, you know, Don Olmeyer, 
who, you know, was a giant in the, in the television industry from, you know, he's, he's from the entertainment side, from the sports side, he directed the Indy 500 for a number of years. And he came up with the idea with the folks at IMG, you know, to have this, the skins game. And, um, you know, it was really kind of one of the, one of the first and really most impactful made for television golf events and they'd been doing it for a number of years when I got lucky enough and, and was hired by the folks at Olmeyer communications. And, you know, the skins games was one of the first, first jobs that I had working for them. And, um, it was amazing. I mean, just to be around, you know, four of the greatest players of, of either the year or of all time, um, was really cool. And, you know, the pressure, the pressure doing that show, which was on Thanksgiving weekend on network television compared to the pressure that we had just televising a normal PGA tour, a champions tour event was, was, you know, it was a, a whole different level. I mean, Don was there producing and you, you know, I got yelled at once by Don Olmeyer and I never got yelled at him by, again. <laughs> Cause I made sure I wouldn't, I didn't make that same mistake. And it was scary. It was, it was a little scary for a kid from Reno, you know, he slid open the door to the tape room and, basically I uh, chewed my you know what off and and I deserved it but um it was it was really fun it was really fun being a part of those shows and and seeing those uh those great players kind of in a different in a different venue with a little less pressure even though the money was great there wasn't a tournament on the line so they always acted a little bit differently but but those were great days those were great times and Keith like I mentioned in the intro you were among the first 40 people hired when the golf channel yeah. got started, what do you remember about getting that network up and running? Um, I remember a lot of things, Chris. It was, um, first of all, I remember waiting to get a phone call. <laughs> I was at ESPN at the time in Bristol and we had heard rumblings around the hallways about this, this golf network that was going to be starting. And, and, uh, you know, everybody kind of, and, and at ESPN kind of, scoffed at the idea and said it would never work but you know they kept like a bunch of people from espn kept getting hired and leaving bristol and going down to the golf channel and you know i knew that they hadn't hired a producer for their tournament coverage um but my phone didn't ring and then so eventually it did and um the end of end of september of 1994 and i went down to orlando and interviewed and they they did the interview with me playing nine holes on the golf course and decided that uh that i was the guy they wanted i later found out that they had offered the job to pretty much everybody else and everybody else had turned them <laughs> down so <laughs> but i was happy i was thrilled to take the job but um it was um it was a combination of um the most exciting um the, the teamwork to get that that network up and running was was something that I, you know, it, I, I hadn't known anything about and I will never experience again. It was just an incredible group of people that had decided to follow Joe Gibbs and his dream and Arnold Palmer and his dream to make this all golf network a reality. And then it was also the wild, wild west. I mean, we were the, the COO at the time was a gentleman named Gary Stevenson and he, um, you know, basically he said, listen, we hired you because you know what you're doing. You go out and take your team and produce tournaments. 
we have a million things to worry about here in Orlando about getting shows on the air and, you know, all that stuff. He said, the one thing I don't want to have to worry about is the tournament coverage. And so you go do your thing. And they basically left us alone for about 10 years to go out wow. there and, and just do whatever we wanted. I mean, obviously, you know, with, with a certain amount of, you know, it was always professional, but we, you know, we got to try so many things, putting microphones on players. We brought out jugs guns to measure ball speed before long before there was anything like a track man. I used the, the baseball, you know, the guy that sits behind home plate yeah. measuring this, this, the, with the jugs gun to measure the speed of a fastball. I thought, well, why can't that work with a golf ball? So we got a couple of jugs guns from the jugs corporation and, and we were measuring ball speeds with a jugs gun. And, you know, we, we just had a ball. I mean, it was so much fun and it was so much hard work. The team, it, the teamwork and the, and everybody's passion, um, just it it was it was the greatest it was the greatest experience of my life it was really fantastic and keith you you mentioned both joe gibbs and arnold palmer i think you know a lot of people credit arnold with getting the golf channel off the ground but i don't think enough people know or remember that it was former redskins head coach joe gibbs that was a large part of getting that network started right well it was actually it wasn't that it was a different joe gibbs yeah same name but Joe, the Joe Gibbs that started the Golf Channel was a, a Birmingham, Alabama businessman. He made a bunch of money building mm -hmm. cell phone towers across uh, the American South. And he was a member at Shoal Creek. And when the PGA Championship was being played at Shoal Creek, he was set to host. He told the, the, turn, the championship organizers that he'd like to host a player. They said, how about Ben Crenshaw? He said, great, fantastic. Um, about a week before uh, the championship was set to begin, Ben decided not to stay with Joe. He found other accommodations. So Joe was crestfallen, but he went back and said, I'm st I'd still like to host a player. And the tournament said, well, how about Arnold Palmer? <laughs> so he went from ben, you know, hosting Ben Crenshaw to hosting Arnold Palmer. And Joe had this idea of that it was time for a 24-hour um, golf network. And he and Arnold over drinks – all week long sat and talked about the possibility of putting together um, an all golf network and got Joe, uh, Joe got Mr. Palmer on board and um, you know, Joe went out and got the financing and with Arnold, you know, there in meetings that brought people along to say, yeah, well, I'll invest in this. And you know, the, the golf channel never, I think, I like to think, because at the time, even when ESPN was, when I was up at ESPN, they were talking about, they had, they had, I went to Bristol to help um, with the early days of ESPN2, and they were already talking about ESPN3 and other networks. And we had heard in meetings that they even that, that they even had talked about an all-golf channel that they were going to call ESPN4, F-O-R-E. Um, but Joe kind of beat them to the punch. So I think there would have been a golf channel eventually, but not um, – it took Joe and, and Arnold Palmer and Arnold Palmer basically went to the tour and said, I'm, you know, I'm involved in this. I'm a big part of this. I'm backing this. It would be really great if the PGA tour would see it in, you know, in their vision to help make this thing succeed. And that's how we got, we, we televised a handful of PGA tour events, even in 1995 when we went on the air as well as the Nike tour at the time. And um, 
so that that made a huge difference. Arnold's presence um, made a huge difference. And I always say that, you know, it was Joe's dream, but there never would have been a golf channel without Arnold Palmer. And the golf channel would have in its in its that iteration would have never succeeded without Tiger Woods. Keith, just a, a couple more before we let you go. And sure. you talk sure. in the book about some of the on-air talent that you had there at the Golf Channel to kick things off. You know, Peter Kessler, Kelly Tillman, Scott Van Pelt, mm-hmm. which people will know now from his time on ESPN. Talk about working with those guys. It was great. Those guys were funny. Uh, Peter was Peter was tremendous. I mean, Peter uh, Peter was one of the most important important cogs uh, in the Golf Channel because he instantly got had his style of interviewing people on that Monday night show. Um, he uh, he he put the players at ease. He got a lot out. Of, I mean, that was, that was appointment television, especially for a fledgling 24 hour network. It was really other than tournament golf coverage, which Joe and Arnold knew that the golf channel had to have to be any kind of successful, but they also had to have something on Monday nights, on Tuesday nights, on Wednesday nights. So that's why they had the golf talk live with Peter. And then they made Tuesday and Wednesday instructional days. Um, so that was kind of the the programming grid, but Peter was great. I mean, he was you know, he knew um, he knew how to get the most out of out of people. Uh, Scott Scott worked in the library. Scott was you know Scott was a kid out of the University of Maryland. Um, you know had a fr- had a friend or two that got had gotten jobs at Golf Channel, and decided that you know that might be something he'd be interested in and. Um, you know, he was working in the library and kept hounding, again, Gary Stevenson, who was the COO at the time, telling him that he wanted, you know, he he wanted to be on-air talent. And Gary took a liking to Scott, thought Scott was – everybody thought Scott was funny because Scott was funny. So one day, Gary, in a meeting, said, here's what we're going to do. We keep getting phone calls from players, friends, family, moms, dads, agents. You didn't show – Joey Cho, Joey Choi on on Golf Channel. You didn't show, you know, this guy or that guy during the tournament coverage. You know, I'm I'm upset. You know, you're the Golf Channel. You should show every golfer who ever hit a golf shot on you know on television. And so Gary said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a show at 11 o'clock at night, and it's going to run for a half an hour. And all we're going to do is scroll scores of every tournament that was played that day, and we're going to call it Leaderboard Report." And he said, I got the guy to host it. He's a kid in the library right now. His name is Scott Van Pelt, and he's going to host it. And we're going to put this show on the air. And we all said, okay, great. So he had a meeting with Scott and told Scott, here's the deal. You come on the air and you say, hi, I'm Scott Van Pelt, and this is a leaderboard report. And then we're going to scroll scores for 27 minutes. And then you're going to come on the air at the end and say, hi, this I am Scott Van Pelt, and this was Leaderboard Report. And that's all you're going to do, and that's all you're going to say. <laughs> so Scott said, wow. okay, you know, I want to be on TV. <laughs> so the first time we started score- scrolling the scores, it took about two minutes for Scott's personality to take over. And one of the things he said was, I'll never forget it. He said, oh, Corey Pavin, 79 today. I guess you're sleeping in the garage. And Gary loved it. 
And so Gary said, I want to hear more of that. So then all of a sudden it turned into this half hour of Scott Van Pelt being Scott Van Pelt. And um, that was the beginning of, I guess, Scott would say that's, that was the beginning of his career. That's great. That's a great story. I can I can picture that. So that's fantastic. Right. Um, talk about Kelly Tillman. How did how did you guys come across her? Um, Kelly came from. She played college golf at Duke. Um, she played. She I she played professionally for a little bit and and didn't find much success. But the same thing. She was uh, she was a kid from Myrtle Beach um, and. Uh, Mike Whalen, uh, who was the, uh, the the head of production for Golf Channel, and Bob Greenway, who was you know kind of the right the, Joe's right hand man when it came to that. Both those guys came from HBO to help um, start Golf Channel. Um, found you know Kelly applied and found Kelly, and and they they really thought that uh, that she was you know she with the, with her golf background that uh, she was going to be a great addition to the on air staff. At Golf Channel, and she was. I mean, she was. Uh, she was, uh, you know, a pro, and she she worked her tail off, and she did a, a ton of research. I'm not sure, um, in in my entire time of working in television, that I saw anybody uh, prepare harder than Kelly in terms of of research. She 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 wanted to be make sure that she got everything absolutely correct. So. She started out in the studio and then uh, decided they, the folks, the powers that be decided that, that she should also be part of the uh, live tournament broadcast team. So she came out uh, with us um, on a number of occasions and did the big events. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, Kelly was Kelly. And, you know, I, I don't see, I'm surprised that I don't see as much as uh, much of her on the golf channel as I used to, but when I do, she's still, you know, she's still a pro. And Keith, before we let you go, you've got you've got another book out. It's titled Big Flies. What are with our, uh, li- our listeners whistle about what that book's all about? <laughs> well, it's a mystery. So we wrote the first book, and um, uh, after after um, the Golf Channel, I, I left Golf Channel shortly after that that book was published, and um, I decided that I enjoyed the process of writing that so much that I wanted to try my hand and write another book. So um, I had already told all the stories and, and, you know, I hope, you know, I hope folks got a taste of some of the stories that are in the book. There are a lot, there are a ton more, you know, about things that happened and some great stories about tiger and some great stories about some other players. But um, I told all the real stories that I wanted to tell. So I decided that I'd make one up. So I wrote a mystery. Um, about it's it's kind of like what would happen if a father if a son lost his father and then finds out in the process of uh what happens in the aftermath of that that the father wasn't who he uh claimed to be and was really instead kind of a master criminal and perpetrated crimes including uh, the DB Cooper 1971 wow. hijacking. So, um, it's kind of, it's, 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 it goes on two tracks. It tells the story of the father who's the criminal and the son who finds out that the father is a criminal. So wow. it was fun. <laughs> no doubt. Good for you. Another book on the horizon. And another one's on the, yeah, we're almost done with number three. So, uh, that's another mystery. I guess I'm going to start writing fiction from now on, but uh, 
<laughs> we're working on that one too. And everything has a little bit of a, of a, like a real life, this something that happened in real life in it. So um, I'm drawing from those experiences and trying to put them in fiction form and, and tell some stories. I figured that, you know, as I look back on my career between writing commercials and writing news pieces and sports stories and teases for the openings of shows and, and features and bumpers. I've been basically writing my entire career. So why not just continue doing that? There you go. So Keith, let our <laughs> listeners know, how can they stay up to date with what you're doing when the other book comes out and, you know, let them know where they can get a copy of uh, the two that you've already done. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's just keithherschland.com, K-E-I-T-H-H-I-R-S-H-L-A-N-D.com. And there you can find both books. And I wrote, I write a blog um, that, you know, it sometimes is TV related, sometimes is golf related, sometimes is sports related, and sometimes it's just whatever I'm thinking about at the time. And then I'm also on Twitter uh, the, at Big Flies Book. That's my Twitter handle, so... All right. Fantastic. Well, Keith, yeah. you know, it's, you've got so many great stories and then, you know, we just barely scratched the surface of, of what was in the first book. And I'd love to get some more time with you. I hope you'll come back and, and join me again sometime. Like I say, so much more I'd like to get into with you. Anytime, Chris. I'd love to chat with you. It was great. All right. Thank you, Keith, for, uh, for your time tonight. Look forward to hopefully, like I say, catching up with you again real soon. Yeah, I look forward to it, too. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Yep. That is Keith Hirschland, and uh, I'm telling you, folks, the book is absolutely spectacular. And like I say, I'm not a reader. Anyone that knows me knows I'm not a reader. But uh, when I picked up Cover Me, Boys, I'm going in and just started to read that book. You know, it's like one chapter leads to the next, and you can't wait to see what's happening in the next chapter and the, hear and read the, you know more of the stories. And it just it goes on, you know, because you know, like I say, not being a reader, and the and the book is over 500 pages, so I'm intimidated from the moment I get it. Right. And then, like I said, you crack it open and you start to read it. And the next thing you know, you're 100 pages in, you're 150 pages in, you're 200 pages in, and it just keeps going. It's fantastic stuff. I can't recommend it highly enough. And Keith's fantastic. Hopefully we get the privilege of getting him back and sharing more of the stories from that book and, you know, big flies and, you know, other things that he is doing because that was fantastic. And I look forward to catching up again, like I say, with Keith real soon. All right, folks, before we close up shop, you know we always like to, you know, close out the show with a reminder about our good friend and PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear a word from Jim on that. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. 
Yeah, folks, they continue to do great things at the Salute Military Golf Association. Please, to find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at the Bradley Putter Company. You know, over the last several months, you've heard me talking about the meteoric rise of the Bradley Putter Company from concept last Black, Black Friday to one of the, the uh, sensations at the PGA Merchandise Show back in January. I got mine, and folks, it's a beauty. I'm proud to be partnering with Bradley to help promote their unique line of putters. They're made from burl wood, and these just aren't ornamental putters, folks. People are raving about the look and feel of the Bradley Putter. They custom-make them to the shape and the color that you want. I got mine in, in black and yellow to support my Pittsburgh teams. Go online to bradleyputters.com to see what a great line of new putters these really are. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Sean McKeel, Rob Strano, and Keith Hirschland for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Share your feedback. And if you happen to have questions for some of our future guests or guys or gals that we've had on the show previously, please let me know in the comments section there. We'll be glad to get those questions over to the appropriate people for you, try to get them answered for you. Please also check out our site online at nextonthetee.net. On there you can see who some of our future guests are going to be. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free on there as well. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazeri. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Blog Talk Radio. And that show, like this one, also available as a free podcast on TuneIn.com and over on Podbean. And our thanks again to Podbean for uh, you know making us regularly featured uh, podcasts for both shows over in their sports and recreation section. And, folks, if you like streaming podcasts, you got to go check out Podbean. They've got shows from across every genre you can think of. They're fantastic people. they got fantastic shows, and we can't thank them enough for their support. Over on the sister show on Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined every week by five NFL legends sharing their stories from their playing days and in their insights into today's game as well. We also highlight two players doing great things in their community in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. Again, you can find both shows online next on the t.net for this show and thursday night tailgate.com folks thanks again for choosing to listen to this show today we can't thank you enough we really appreciate your support until next week hit them straight my friends you've been listening to next on the t with christmas carol where pga and lpga legends pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf. The weather may be cooling down, but the savings are heating up at your local Sears Auto Center. This Labor Day, you could get four durable all-season diehard tires and only pay for three. Plus, you'll also get a $100 Sears Award card to use on future purchases. Great savings backed with a 70,000 mileage warranty. Die hard. Don't wait. Visit SearsAuto.com to find a Sears near you and take advantage of this Labor Day sale. Installation required. Exclusions may apply. Offer valid now through September 9th.